I did not join the merriment when the kids gathered again under the oak in our bare yard. Suddenly I was ashamed. And I did not like being ashamed. The child in me sulked and said it was all in fun. But the woman in me flinched at the thought of the malicious attack that I had led. This week on Selected Shorts, Shame and the Flower Garden. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. The truth looks very different up close than it does from far away. As much as we feel we understand a situation, we sometimes don't get the full picture until we're near and can't turn away. When the folks at Selected Shorts approached me about hosting and curating a program of short stories at Symphony Space, I saw this as an opportunity to share some of my favorite writers with a new audience. And our first story comes from one of these authors, N.K. Jemison, a Hugo Award-winning author of speculative fiction. The story you are about to hear, Elevator Dancer, is a pretty dystopian tale, and it was performed impeccably on the night by the actor Laura Gomez. Shift change, change shift, humdrum and no hum, and on the little screen, a woman dances. She is in the elevator. She is alone in the elevator, and she's dancing because there is no one to see her but the security camera and the security guard who watches its output on the little screen. She's dancing the mashed potatoes. He knows the name of the dance because he remembers his mother's doing it in a silly moment of his childhood. It's a silly dance at the best of times, even for a good dancer, which this woman is not. (laughs) Yet the guard does not press the button beside his workstation. He does not alert the police who these days concern themselves with other things besides crime. He simply stares as she twists her feet and hips over and over, bopping her head, too, in time to her own internal rhythm. Then the automated elevator voice says, you have reached your floor, and the woman stops. She's not breathing hard, not a hair is out of place. No drop of sweat marks her modest gray skirt suit to suggest that here is a woman who cares only for her own pleasure. Here is a woman who has a life alone, and worst of all, enjoys it. The doors open and she walks out. Several people walk in, and the guard sits back in his chair, his every nerve and hair follicle a tingle. He wonders when they will come for him, but they do not. At the end of his shift, he goes home to his modest house and the modest wife that the government assigned to him, and as he eats the dinner as she has prepared, he thinks about the woman in the elevator. After dinner, he helps his wife clean up. That much is not prescribed as women's work. His hands are slick with grease and suds, and he thinks about the liquid movement of the elevator woman's hips. 
Later that evening, he and his wife watched TV together, and during the prayer and commercial break, he wonders what the elevator woman prays for. For that night, his wife sighs as usual while she does her wifely duty, and he sighs as usual and climbs on top of her, and as an otherwise lackluster orgasm passes through his flesh, his soul is consumed with the memory of the woman in the elevator. Change shift, shift change, and he watches the screens in the little dark room. His supervisors would think him very diligent, but he's watching just for her. He leans forward, his palms damp, when she gets into the elevator. The doors begin to close. Just before they do, a hand inserts itself, another employee of the corporation, just in time to catch the elevator down to the lobby. The woman politely nods to him. They do not exchange small talk. She does not dance. She never dances when anyone is in the elevator with her. Does she know about the camera and the control panel? She must. Surveillance is everywhere. But every day he sees her, sometimes alone and sometimes amid her fellow office drones, and it is only alone that she suddenly begins pirouetting over and over and over until the elevator stops and she's not dizzy because she used the door seam to spot herself. Or swaying in a circle, her hips gyrating in a way that would make the concerned women for America much more concerned. <laughs> but as the guard watches her, he thinks maybe this is how Salome made John the Baptist lose his head. <laughs> this is why dancing is illegal. This will send me to hell, he tells himself. Hell in a handbasket, in a government detention camp. She cannot be married or she wouldn't be employed. No one then has been assigned her as a wife. Does that mean no? Divorce is illegal, and she would be bored with him, he feels, if he were hers. She does not do it for him. Still, he cannot tear his eyes away. Shift change, change shift, day in and day out, and finally, he can no longer bear the torment. He looks at her in the lunchroom cafeteria. She's not there. He contrived to take his break standing near her favorite elevator, but she does not come. He skims the employee directory, hoping, hoping, but he does not see her. He wonders why they have not yet come for him, but they do not come. Maybe they are busy, and as the shift change, he begins to believe that God has sent her to teach him. The pastor's words from Wednesday night Bible study and Sunday afternoon service suddenly make sense. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, it makes a sound if God wills. The elevator woman is that sound. She exalts him and inspires him. She fills him with a fervor he believes is holy. To dance with her is to embody prayer. He weeps as he tries to find her and fails. Finally, he loses control. He's overwhelmed by the fundamental emptiness of his life. He needs 
On the little monitor screen, she dances. This time, something most definitely prescribed, because it is foreign and heathen. He thinks maybe it is thigh. She weaves her head from side to side like a snake, and maybe she means to evoke Eve or even Lilith most evil. Or maybe it just feels good. Either way, he is bewitched. He leaps up from his chair and tears through the hallways and does not care that he's frightening everyone, that the cameras will catch in his strange behavior and some more diligent security guard will report him. He tears through the walls, fluorescent change, corridor shift, and suddenly he is at the elevator. He has beaten the elevator there. He will meet her at last. The doors open. She's not there. He's helped. He has been a good American all his life, obedient and steadfast, and this is a minor setback. In the camp, he learns that it was all a hallucination, caused by not lack of faith, but misplaced faith. The elevator woman may well have been there, but if so, she was sent to tempt him. How foolish was he to fall prey. Now he sits again in the dark little room with the monitors and resolutely tells himself that he does not see the woman dancing. She is not there. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, it makes a sound if God wills. But that is a tree, not a woman, and God does not will a woman to dance. It is shameful and sinful to question the will of God. Still, the guard cannot help wondering. He does not want to think this thought, but sly like temptation, it comes anyhow. And, well, if, if a tree falls, if a tree falls and there's no one around to hear it but God, would it really bother with anything so mundane as making a sound? Or would it dance? That was Laura Gomez performing Elevator Dancer by N.K. Jemison. I'm LeVar Burton. Our next story is by Eugenia W. Collier. Now, she is a writer that has produced a number of works, but is best known by this tale about coming of age during the Great Depression. Here is Sharon Washington reading Marigolds. When I think of the hometown of my youth, all that I seem to remember is dust. The brown, crumbly dust of late summer. Arid, sterile dust that gets into the eyes and makes them water, gets into the throat and between the toes of the bare brown feet. I don't know why I should remember only the dust. 
Surely there must have been lush green lawns and paved streets under leafy shade trees somewhere in town. But memory is an abstract painting. It does not present things as they are, but rather as they feel. And so when I think of that time and that place, I remember only the dry September of the dirt roads and grassless yards of the shantytown where I lived. And one other thing I remember, another incongruency of memory, a brilliant splash of sunny yellow against the dust, Miss Lottie's marigolds. Whenever the memory of these marigolds flashes across my mind, a strange nostalgia comes with it and remains long after the picture has faded. I feel again the chaotic emotions of adolescence, elusive as smoke, yet as real as the potted geranium before me now. Joy and rage and wild animal gladness and shame become tangled together in the multicolored skein of 14 going on 15 as I recall that devastating moment when I was suddenly more woman than child, years ago in Miss Lottie's yard. I think of those marigolds at the strangest times. I remember them vividly now as I desperately pass away the time. I suppose that futile waiting was the sorrowful background music of our impoverished little community when I was young. The depression that gripped the nation was no new thing to us, for the black workers of rural Maryland had always been depressed. I don't know what it was that we were waiting for, certainly not for the prosperity that was just around the corner, for those were white folks' words, which we never believed. Nor did we wait for hard work and thrift to pay off in shining success as the American dream promised, for we knew better than that, too. Perhaps we waited for a miracle, amorphous in concept, but necessary if one were to have the grit to rise before each dawn and labor in the white man's vineyard until after dark, or to wander about in the September dust offering one sweat in return for some meager share of bread. But God was cherry with miracles in those days, and so we waited, and waited. We children, of course, were only vaguely aware of the extent of our poverty. Having no radios, few newspapers, and no magazines, we were somewhat unaware of the world outside our community. Nowadays, we would be called culturally deprived, and people would write books and hold conferences about us. In those days, everybody we knew was just as hungry and ill-clad as we were. Poverty was the cage in which we all were trapped, and our hatred of it was still the vague, undirected restlessness of the zoo-bred flamingo who knows that nature created him to fly free. As I think of those days, I feel most poignantly the tag end of summer, the bright, dry times when we began to have a sense of shortening days and the imminence of the cold. 
By the time I was 14, my brother Joey and I were the only children left at our house, the older ones having left home for early marriage or the lure of the city, and the two babies having been sent to relatives who might care for them better than we. Joey was three years younger than I and a boy, and therefore vastly inferior. Each morning, our mother and father trudged warily down the dirt road and around the bend, she to her domestic job, he to his daily unsuccessful quest for work. After our few chores around the tumble-down shanty, Joey and I were free to run wild in the sun with the other children similarly situated. For the most part, those days are ill-defined in my memory, running together and combining like a fresh watercolor painting left out in the rain. I remember squatting in the road, drawing a picture in the dust, a picture which Joey gleefully erased with one sweep of his dirty foot. I remember fishing for minnows in a muddy creek and watching sadly as they eluded my cupped hands while Joey laughed uproariously. And I remember that year a strange restlessness of body and spirit, a feeling that something old and familiar was ending and something unknown and therefore terrifying was beginning. One day returns to me with special clarity for some reason, perhaps because it was the beginning of the experience that in some inexplicable way marked the end of innocence. I was loafing under the great oak tree in our yard, deep in some reverie which I have now forgotten, except that it involved some secret, secret thoughts of one of the Harris boys across the yard. Joey and a bunch of kids were bored now with the old tire suspended from an oak limb, which had kept them entertained for a while. Hey, Lisbeth, Joey yelled. He never talked when he could yell. Hey, Lisbeth, let's go somewhere. I came reluctantly from my private world. Where you wanna go? What you wanna do? The truth was that we were becoming tired of the formlessness of our summer days, the idleness whose prospect had seemed so beautiful during the busy days of spring now had degenerated to an almost desperate effort to fill up the empty midday hours. Let's go see, can we find some locusts on the hill? Someone suggested. Joey was scornful. Ain't no more locusts there. Y'all got them all when they were still green. The argument that followed was brief and not really worth the effort. Hunting locust trees wasn't fun anymore by now. Tell you what, said Joey finally, his eyes sparkling. Let us go over to Miss Lottie's. The idea caught on at once, for annoying Miss Lottie was always fun. I was still child enough to scamper along with the group over rickety fences and through bushes that tore our already raggedy clothes back to where Miss Lottie lived. I think now that we must have been a tragicomic spectacle, five or six kids of different ages, each of us clad in only one garment, the girls in faded dresses that were too long or too short, 
the boys in patchy pants, their sweaty brown chests gleaming in the hot sun. A little cloud of dust followed our thin legs and bare feet as we trampled over the barren land. When Miss Lottie's house came into view, we stopped, ostensibly to plan our strategy, but actually to reinforce our courage. Miss Lottie's house was the most ramshackle of all our ramshackle homes. The sun and rain had long since faded its rickety frame from white to a sullen gray. The boards themselves seemed to remain upright, not from being nailed together, but rather from leaning together like a house that a child might have constructed from cards. A brisk wind might have blown it down, and the fact that it was still standing implied a kind of enchantment that was stronger than the elements. There it stood, and as far as I know, is standing yet. A gray, rotting thing with no porch, no shutters, no steps, set on a cramped lot with no grass, not even any weeds, a monument to decay. In front of the house, in a squeaky rocking chair, sat Miss Lottie's son, John Burke, completing the impression of decay. John Burke was what was known as queer-headed. Black and ageless, he sat rocking day in and day out in a mindless stupor, lulled by the monotonous squeak-squawk of the chair. A battered hat atop his shaggy head shaded him from the sun. Usually, John Burke was totally unaware of everything outside his quiet dream world. But if you disturbed him, if you intruded upon his fantasies, he would become enraged, strike out at you, and curse at you in some strange, enchanted language which only he could understand. We children made a game of thinking of ways to disturb John Burke and then to elude his violent retribution. But our real fun and our real fear lay in Miss Lottie herself. Miss Lottie seemed to be at least a hundred years old. Her big frame still held traces of the tall, powerful woman she must have been in youth, although it was now bent and drawn. Her smooth skin was a dark reddish brown, and her face had Indian-like features and the stern stoicism that one associates with Indian faces. Miss Lottie didn't like intruders either, especially children. She never left her yard, and nobody ever visited her. We never knew how she managed those necessities which depend on human interaction, how she ate, for example, or even whether she ate. When we were tiny children, we thought Miss Lottie was a witch, and we made up tales that we half believed ourselves about her exploits. We were far too sophisticated now, of course, to believe the witch nonsense. But old fears have a way of clinging like cobwebs, and so when we sighted the tumble-down shack, we had to stop to reinforce our nerves. There she is, I whispered, forgetting that Miss Lottie could not possibly have heard me from that distance. She's fooling with them crazy flowers. 
Yeah, look at her. Miss Lottie's marigolds were perhaps the strangest part of the picture. Certainly, they did not fit in with the crumbling decay of the rest of her yard. Beyond the dusty brown yard, in front of the sorry gray house, rose suddenly and shockingly a dazzling strip of bright blossoms, clumped together in enormous mounds, warm and passionate and sun-golden. The old black witch woman worked on them all summer, every summer, down on her creaky knees, weeding and cultivating and arranging, while the house crumbled and John Burke rocked. For some perverse reason, we children hated those marigolds. They interfered with the perfect ugliness of the place. They were too beautiful. They said too much that we could not understand. They did not make sense. There was something in the vigor with which the old woman destroyed the weeds that intimidated us. It should have been a comical sight. The old woman with the man's hat on, her cropped white head leaning over the bright mounds, her big backside in the air. But it wasn't comical. It was something we could not name. We had to annoy her by whizzing a pebble into her flowers or by yelling a dirty word, then dancing away from her rage, reveling in our youth and mocking her age. Actually, I think it was the flowers we wanted to destroy. But nobody had the nerve to try it, not even Joey, who was usually fool enough to try anything. Get y'all some stones, commanded Joey, and was met with instant giggling obedience as everyone except me began to gather pebbles from the dusty ground. Come on, Lizbeth. I just stood there, peering through the bushes, torn between wanting to join the fun and feeling that it was all a bit silly. You scared, Lizbeth? I cursed and spat on the ground, my favorite gesture of phony bravado. <laughs> Y'all children get the stones. I'll show you how to use them. I said before that we children were not consciously aware of how thick were the bars of our cage. I wonder now, though, whether we were not more aware of it than I thought. Perhaps we had some dim notion of what we were and how little chance we had of being anything else. Otherwise, why would we have been so preoccupied with destruction? Anyway, the pebbles were collected quickly, and everybody looked at me to begin the fun. Come on, y'all. We crept to the edge of the bushes that bordered the narrow road in front of Miss Lottie's place. She was working placidly, kneeling over the flowers, her dark hand plunged into the golden mound. Suddenly, zing, an expertly aimed stone cut the head off one of her blossoms. Who out there? Miss Lottie's backside came down and her head came up as her sharp eyes searched the bushes. You better get. We had crouched down out of sight in the bushes where we stifled the giggles that insisted on coming. 
Miss Lottie gazed warily across the road for a moment, then cautiously returned to her weeding. Zing! Joey sent a pebble into the blossoms, and another marigold was beheaded. Miss Lottie was enraged now. She began struggling to her feet, leaning on a rickety cane and shouting, y'all get, go on home. Then the rest of the kids let loose with their pebbles, storming the flowers and laughing wildly and senselessly at Miss Lottie's impotent rage. She shook her stick at us and started shakily toward the road, crying, get along, John Burke, John Burke, come help. Then I lost my head entirely, mad with the power of inciting such rage, and ran out of the bushes in the storm of pebbles straight toward Miss Lottie, chanting madly, old witch fell in a ditch, picked up a penny, and thought she was rich. The children screamed with delight, dropped their pebbles, and joined the crazy dance, swarming around Miss Lottie like bees and chanting, Oh, lady witch, while she screamed curses at us. The madness lasted only a moment, for John Burke, startled at last, lurched out of his chair, and we dashed for the bushes just as Miss Lottie's cane went whizzing at my head. I did not join the merriment when the kids gathered again under the oak in our bare yard. Suddenly I was ashamed and I did not like being ashamed. The child in me sulked and said it was all in fun, but the woman in me flinched at the thought of the malicious attack that I had led. The mood lasted all afternoon. When we ate the beans and rice that was supper that night, I did not notice my father's silence, for he was always silent these days. Nor did I notice my mother's absence, for she always worked well into the evening. Joey and I had a particularly bitter argument after supper. His exuberance got on my nerves. Finally, I stretched out upon the pallet in the room we shared and fell into a fitful doze. When I awoke somewhere in the middle of the night, my mother had returned and I vaguely listened to the conversation that was audible through the thin walls that separated our rooms. At first, I heard no words, only voices. My mother's voice was like a cool, dark room in summer, peaceful, soothing, quiet. I love to listen to it. It made things seem all right somehow. But my father's voice cut through hers, shattering the peace. 22 years, Maybelle, 22 years, he was saying, and I got nothing for you, nothing, nothing. It's all right, honey, you'll get something. Everybody out of work now, you know that. It ain't right. Ain't no man ought to eat his woman's food year in and year out and see his children running wild. Ain't nothing right about that. Honey, you took good care of us when you had it. 
Ain't nobody got nothing nowadays. I ain't talking about nobody else. I'm talking about me. God knows I try. My mother said something I could not hear, and my father cried out louder, What must a man do? Tell me that. Look, we ain't starving. I get paid every week, and Mrs. Ellis is real nice about giving me things. She's gonna let me have Mr. Ellis's old coat for you this winter. Damn Mr. Ellis's coat, and damn his money. You think I want white folks' leavings? Damn, Maybell. And suddenly, he sobbed, loudly and painfully, and cried helplessly and hopelessly in the dark night. I had never heard a man cry before. I did not know men ever cried. I covered my ears with my hands, but could not cut off the sound of my father's harsh, painful, despairing sobs. My father was a strong man who could whisk a child upon his shoulders and go singing through the house. My father whittled toys for us and laughed so loud that the great oak seemed to laugh with him and taught us how to fish and hunt rabbits. How could it be that my father was crying? But the sobs went on, unstifled, finally quieting until I could hear my mother's voice, deep and rich humming softly as she used to hum to a frightened child. The world had lost its boundary lines. My mother, who was small and soft, was now the strength of the family. My father, who was the rock on which the family had been built, was sobbing like the tiniest child. Everything was suddenly out of tune, like a broken accordion. Where did I fit into this crazy picture? I do not now remember my thoughts, only a feeling of great bewilderment and fear. Long after the sobbing and humming had stopped, I lay on the pallet, still as a stone with my hands over my ears, wishing that I too could cry and be comforted. The night was silent now, except for the sound of the crickets and of Joey's soft breathing. But the room was too crowded with the fear to allow me to sleep. And finally, feeling the terrible aloneness of 4 a.m., I decided to awaken Joey. Ouch, what's the matter with you? What you want? He demanded disagreeably when I had pinched and slapped him awake. Come on, wake up. What for? Go away. I was lost for a reasonable reply. I could not say, I'm scared and I don't want to be alone. So I merely said, I'm going out. If you want to come, come on. The promise of adventure awoke him. Going out where? Where to, Lizbeth? What you going to do? I was pulling my dress over my head. Until now, I had not thought of going out. 
Just come on, I replied tersely. I was out the window and halfway down the road before Joey caught up with me. Wait, Lisbeth, where are you going? I was running as if the Furies were after me, and perhaps they were. Running silently and furiously until I came to where I had half known I was headed. To Miss Lottie's yard. The half-dawn light was more eerie than complete darkness. And the old house was like the ruin that my world had become. Foul and crumbling, a grotesque caricature. It looked haunted, but I was not afraid because I was haunted too. Lisbeth, you lost your mind, panted Joey. I had indeed lost my mind for all the smoldering emotions of that summer swelled in me and burst. The need for my mother who was never there, the hopelessness of our poverty and degradation, the bewilderment of being neither child nor woman and yet both at once, the fear unleashed by my father's tears. And these feelings combined in one great impulse toward destruction. Lisbeth! I leaped furiously into the mounds of marigolds and pulled madly, trampling and pulling and destroying the perfect yellow blooms. The fresh smell of early morning and of dew-soaked marigolds spurred me on as I went tearing and mangling and sobbing while Joey tugged on my dress or my waist crying, Lisbeth, stop, please stop. And then I was sitting in the ruined little garden among the uprooted and ruined flowers, crying and crying. And it was too late to undo what I had done. Joey was sitting beside me, silent and frightened, not knowing what to say. Then, Lisbeth, look! I opened my swollen eyes and saw in front of me a pair of large, calloused feet. My gaze lifted to the swollen legs, the age-distorted body clad in a tight cotton nightdress, and then the shadowed Indian face surrounded by stubbly white hair. And there was no rage in the face now. Now that the garden was destroyed, and there was nothing any longer to be protected. Miss Lottie. I scrambled to my feet and just stood there and stared at her. And that was the moment when childhood faded and womanhood began. That violent, crazy act was the last act of childhood. For as I gazed at the immobile face with the sad, weary eyes, I gazed upon a kind of reality which is hidden to childhood. The witch was no longer a witch, but only a broken old woman who had dared to create beauty in the midst of ugliness and sterility. She had been born in squalor and lived in it all her life. Now at the end of that life, she had nothing 
except a falling down hut, a wrecked body, and John Burke, the mindless son of her passion. Whatever verve there was left in her, whatever was of love and beauty and joy that had not been squeezed out by life, had been there in the marigolds she had so tenderly cared for. Of course, I could not express the things that I knew about Miss Lottie as I stood there, awkward and ashamed. The years have put words to the things I knew in that moment. And as I look back upon it, I know that the moment marked the end of innocence. Innocence involves an unseeing acceptance of things at face value, an ignorance of the area below the surface. In that humiliating moment, I looked beyond myself and into the depths of another person. This was the beginning of compassion. And one cannot have both compassion and innocence. The years have taken me worlds away from that time and that place, from the dust and squalor of our lives, and from the bright thing that I destroyed in a blind, childish striking out at God knows what. Miss Lottie died long ago, and many years have passed since I last saw her hut, completely barren at last, for despite my wild contrition, she never planted marigolds again. Yet there are times when the image of those passionate yellow mounds returns with a painful poignancy. For one does not have to be ignorant and poor to find that life is as barren as the dusty yards of our town. And I too have planted marigolds. Washington, y'all. Miss Sharon Washington. That was Sharon Washington's interpretation of Marigolds by Eugenia W. Collier. And when we return, a husband with a secret. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm LeVar Burton. Sometimes we just don't want to accept what is really happening until it happens right in front of us. That's just how it is for the wife in our next story by Ursula K. Le Guin. This is 
the great Joanna Gleason reading Ursula K. Le Guin's The Wife's Story. He was a good husband, a good father. I don't understand it. I don't believe in it. I don't believe that it happened. I saw it happen, but it isn't true. It can't be. He was always gentle. If you'd seen him playing with the children, anybody who saw him with the children would have known that there wasn't any bad in him, not one mean bone. When I first met him, he was still living with his mother over near Spring Lake, and I used to see them together, the mother and the sons, and think that any young fellow that was that nice with his family must be one worth knowing. Then one time when I was walking in the woods, I met him by himself coming back from a hunting trip. He hadn't got any game at all, not so much as a field mouse, but he wasn't cast down about it. He was just larking along, enjoying the morning air. That's one of the things I first loved about him. He didn't take things hard. He didn't grouch and whine when things didn't go his way. So we got to talking that day, and I guess things moved right along after that because pretty soon he was over here, pretty near all the time. And my sister said, well, you see, my parents had moved out the year before and gone south, leaving us the place. My, my sister said, kind of teasing, but serious. Well, if he's going to be here every day and half the night, I guess there isn't room for me. And she moved out, just down the way. We've always been real close, her and me. That's the sort of thing doesn't ever change. I could never have got through this bad time without my sis. Well, so he come to live here, and all I can say is it was the happy year of my life. He was just purely good to me, a hard worker and never lazy and so big and fine looking. Everybody looked up to him, you know, young as he was. Lodge meeting nights, more and more often they had him to lead the singing. He had such a beautiful voice. And he'd lead off strong and the others following and joining in high voices and low. It brings the shivers on me now to think of it, hearing it. Nights when I'd stayed home from meeting when the children was babies, the singing, coming up through the trees there and the moonlight, the summer nights, the full moon shining. I'll never hear anything so beautiful. I'll never know a joy like that again. It was the moon. That's what they say. It's the moon's fault and the blood. It was in his father's blood. I never knew his father, and now I wonder what become of him. He was from up Whitewater Way and had no kin around here. I always thought he went back there, but now I don't know. There was some talk about him, tales that come out after what happened to my husband. It's something runs in the blood, they say, and it may never come out, but if it does, it's the change of the moon that does it. Always, it happens in the dark of the moon when everybody's at home and asleep. Something comes over the one that's got the curse in his blood, they say, and he gets up because he can't sleep and he goes out into the glaring sun and goes off all alone drawn to find those like him. 
And it may be so because my husband would do that. I'd half rouse and say, where are you going to? And he'd say, oh, hunting, be back this evening. And it wasn't like him. Even his voice was different. But I'd be so sleepy and not wanting to wake the kids, and he was so good and responsible, and it was no call of mine to go asking why and where and all like that. So it happened that way maybe three times or four. He'd come back late and worn out and pretty near cross for one so sweet-tempered, not wanting to talk about it. I figured everybody's got to bust out now and then, and nagging never helped anything, but it did begin to worry me. Not so much that he went, but that he come back so tired and strange. Even he smelled strange. I had made my hair stand up on end. I could not endure it, and I said, what is that? Those smells on you, all over you? And he said, I don't know, real short, and made like he was sleeping. But he went down when he thought I wasn't noticing and washed and washed himself. But those smells stayed in his hair and in our bed for days. And then the awful thing. I don't find it easy to tell about this. I want to cry when I have to bring it to my mind. Our youngest, the little one, my baby, she turned from her father just overnight. He come in and she got scared looking, stiff, with her eyes wide, and then she began to cry and try to hide behind me. She didn't yet talk plain, but she was saying over and over, make it go away, make it go away. The look in his eyes, just for one moment when he heard that, that's what I don't want ever to remember. That's what I can't forget. The look in his eyes, looking at his own child. I said to the child, shame on you, what's got into you? Scolding her, but I was keeping her right close to me at the same time because I was frightened to do, frightened to shaking. He looked away then and he said something like, guess she just waked up dreaming and passed it off that way. Or tried to. And so did I. And I got real mad with my baby when she kept on acting crazy scared of her own dad, but she couldn't help it and I couldn't change it. He kept away that whole day because he knew, I guess. And it was just beginning dark of the moon. It was hot and close inside and dark, and we'd all been asleep some while when something woke me up. He wasn't there beside me. I heard a little stir in the passage when I listened, so I got up because I could bear it no longer. I went into the passage, and it was light there, hard sunlight coming in from the door, and I saw him standing just outside in the tall grass by the entrance. His head was hanging. Presently, he sat down like he felt weary and looked down at his feet. I held still inside and watched. I don't know what for. I saw the changing. In his feet it was first. They got long. Each foot got longer, stretching out. The toes stretching out on the foot, getting long and fleshy and white, and no hair on them. The hair began to come away all over his body. It was like his hair fried away in the sunlight and was gone. He was white all over then, like a worm's skin. And he turned his face. It was changing while I looked. It got flatter and flatter, the mouth flat and wide, and the teeth grinning flat and dull, and the nose 
just a knob of flesh with nostril holes, and the ears gone, and the eyes gone blue, blue with white rims around the blue, staring at me out of that flat, soft, white face. He stood up then on two legs. I saw him. I had to see him, my own dear love, turned into the hateful one. I couldn't move, but as I crouched there in the passage, staring out into the day, I was trembling and shaking with a growl that burst out into a crazy, awful howling, a grief howl and a terror howl and a calling howl, and the others heard it, even sleeping, and woke up. It stared and peered, that thing my husband had turned into, and shoved its face up to the entrance of our house. I was still bound by mortal fear, but behind me the children had waked up and the baby was whimpering. The mother anger come into me then, and I snarled and crept forward. The man thing looked around. It, it had no gun like the ones from the man places do but it picked up a heavy fallen tree branch in its long white foot and shoved the end of that down into our house. I snapped the end of it in my teeth and started to force my way out because I knew the man would kill our children if it could. But my sister was already coming. I saw her running at the man with her head low and her mane high and her eyes yellow as the winter sun. It turned on her and raised up that branch to hit her, but I come out of the doorway mad with the mother anger, and all the others were coming, answering my call, the whole pack gathering there in that blind glare in the heat of the sun at noon. The man looked round at us and yelled out loud and brandished the branch it held. Then it broke and ran, heading for the cleared fields and the plowlands down the mountainside. It ran on two legs, leaping and weaving, and we followed it. I was last because love still bound the anger and the fear in me. I was running when I saw them pull it down. My sister's teeth were in its throat. I got there and it was dead. The others were drawing back from the kill because of the taste of the blood and the smell. The younger ones were cowering and some crying, and my sister rubbed her mouth against her forelegs over and over to get rid of the taste. I went up close because I thought if the thing was dead, the spell, the curse must be done and my husband could come back, alive or even dead, if I could only see him, my true love, in his true form, beautiful. But only the dead man lay there, white and bloody. We drew back and back from it and turned and ran back up into the hills, back to the woods of the shadows and the twilight and the blessed dark. That was the Wife's Story by Ursula K. Le Guin, performed by Joanna Gleason. I'm LeVar Burton, and thank you for joining me.
for selected shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story, and support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Neas Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Coleman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station and Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space. <laughs>